The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome to Psych Up Live. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. And on this show, we'll be turning up the psychological perspective on many life issues. As the former host of Psych Up on Casota Radio, I joined with terrific guests to host 73 shows. This show is different. It includes you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. So I welcome you to listen in and call in with a question or a comment at 1-866-472-5788. You can tweet me at healings number four couples or send me an email on your impressions at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Today we're going to turn up the perspective on marriage. We're going to ask Are you in a marriage or an irrelationship? What does that mean? How can understanding more about the patterns we bring to our relationships really help us? Our guests are experts, they are the three authors of the new book, Irrelationship. How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy. Our guests are Dr. Mark Borg, a psychologist and psychoanalyst affiliated with the William Ellison White Institute in New York. Dr. Grant Brenner, a board-certified psychiatrist who serves on the Board of Disaster Psychiatry Outreach, is faculty at Mount Sinai Hospital and director of the Trauma Service at the William Allison White Institute. And Daniel Berry, a registered nurse and the assistant director of nursing for risk management at a public hospital. Dan has also spent almost two decades in community-based programs and private care for HIV, AIDS, and substance abuse populations. They come to us with tremendous clinical experience. Dr. Mark Borg, Dr. Grant Brenner, Nurse Danny Berry, welcome to Psych Up Live. Thank you. Okay. So, guys, let's start out by asking the question, Grant, let's start with you. What is an irrelationship? I know our listeners are probably wondering, what is it? An irrelationship is a shared defense that two or more people, we're talking about it in terms of romantic couples, use in order to avoid really getting close to each other, to avoid intimacy. And it usually takes the form, as we discuss it, of maladaptive caregiving dynamics where one person plays out being in the role of the performer who is a bit like a compulsive caregiver trying to take care of the other person who is in the role of the audience for whom nothing is working. 
Okay, so an example would be like what? I, I'm a guy who feels like the only way I'm going to prove I have value or I can be loved is if I take care of everything in this family and everything for my partner, but I, but I want them to know that I'm the caregiver. That's and, right. That's right. Uh, and, and the and, other... And it can't, it can't really work. It doesn't really work. And it has its origins in uh, whoever that, that man was as a child, how he had to try to take care of his caregivers growing up. Mm-hmm. Danny probably has something to add here, too. Yeah, um, it originates in, in very early childhood uh, when a, t- a child is being cared for, is supposed to be being cared for uh, by caregivers who are, because of their own negative emotional state, are unable effectively to provide care for the child. So that what happens is that the child and the caregiver flip roles and the child becomes the caregiver or the caretaker uh, for mm-hmm. the adult. Uh, and the child does this because the child feels that he has to do something to intervene to improve the caregiver's emotional state so that he, the child, can feel more secure, can feel more safe. And we know kind of that those survival techniques that we, we need in childhood are very, very hard to shake. Well, people carry them through their adult lives and into virtually every relationship that they get that they go into as adults and not just in marriages but in the workplace and their families um, virtually anywhere where they en- encounter other people that they are in some kind of relationship with okay so let me bring it back to the couple so this fellow who was well trained to take care of his parents in order to get love meets a woman who was well trained to be needy in order to get attention So they meet, and it's like, ah, I've met the perfect person for me. Why isn't that a marriage made in heaven? Well, I mean, what happens? Why why are we saying that these folks are hiding from intimacy? Well, that that is a question uh, that we we raise in the book. Why does this... Why does this have to be dysfunctional? Why doesn't this look perfect? Well, because their needs seem to fit together. But the fact is that this configuration that they moved into is, in fact, a defense against becoming close. They're moving in very carefully circumscribed roles as caretaker and, and as consumer of, of caretaking services. Um, and those roles are carefully uh, choreographed and disallow the possibility of stepping outside them. Ah, if, one, if one or the other of the party steps outside the role and, and begins to behave in a way that's not agreed upon by in a relationship, that causes everybody's anxiety level to begin to skyrocket. So the fact is that what, whatever else is happening, intimacy is not what's happening. So if I was once the needy, I'll make it the needy woman in the relationship, and suddenly I go back to school, and now I'm really holding my own. In fact, I'm contributing big time. I I have much more of a voice. My partner, who was the original caregiver, is really anxious, but I'm even anxious that he's anxious. Well, sure, And, and if you start to be able to take care of yourself, then that puts the other person out of a job. Um, yeah. if it's the man who's the performer who needs to be, he needs to be always fixing the other person. All of a sudden, there's nothing to fix, and so the anxiety comes pouring back in. 
Mm. Now, you can flip it on its head. What's supposed to happen when a couple meets? You know, they have a certain affinity. They're attracted to each other physically. They have chemistry. There's a psychological and emotional attraction. They're supposed to grow together. Um, Mm. They're supposed to enjoy a deepening sense of intimacy. They're supposed to collaboratively, you know, face life's challenges together and grow as a couple as a result of it. And so come to cherish each other more and more, including dealing with the inevitability of life's, you know, ups and downs and losses and family. But with your relationship, what what happens is they don't they don't do that. They they grow apart, but they trick themselves into seeing that they're growing apart by maintaining these caregiving routines until something you know gets in the way, like you're saying, something changes. And the caregiving is so intolerable that they start to become aware of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you could, um, was that Grant speaking? That was Mark. Grant. I'm sorry. I got knocked off. Okay. That was Grant. Um, well, Mark, you're welcome back. Maybe you can let our listeners know. So there's the caregiver. That's one of the routines. But in the book, um, fellas, you use an acronym GRAFTS, G-R-A-F-T-S. What are some right. of the other options, Mark, in terms of roles that people bring rigidly into the relationship? Well, interestingly, we actually see that both sides of the routine are caregivers. There is the performer who overtly performs, and there's the audience who acts as if the performance is actually working. And GRAFTS, right are some of the essential routines, G standing for good, R standing for right, A standing for absent, F standing for funny, T for tense, and S for smart. These are some of the essential routines that children develop in very early life, and they're basically developing this in interaction with a caregiver who they are experiencing as being unhappy. So they start developing these routines in interaction. It's sort of a stimulus-response or we call it a song and dance routine, mm-hmm. that they develop with the parents. So the more that they act, for instance... The more that they act funny or... This is Grant. I wonder if Mark's having some technical difficulties. Okay. Okay. But really, graft, you know, those are all different forms of maladaptive caregiving. The, mm-hmm. the caregiving in, real, in your relationship is, is not real caregiving. But it's, it's the best and a, the only thing the person knew, right, Grant? I mean... Yeah, it's the only thing they knew, so... Yeah, if you had to be, if you had to make your mom laugh, because otherwise she'd be depressed, or you had to kind of stay out of your being absent, like in grafts. But they're all right. different kinds of essentially false caregiving patterns. Mm. One of the things I liked that that you folks said in it is that people start to feel guilty when they realize, oh my God, I do one of these things. I always have to be the funny one. I have to be the rescuer. I have to be smart. But I like what you said at one point is we come on these things not by choice. It's not by choice that we had a parent who insisted we be the performer or that we be the scapegoat or that we be the brilliant child and that that was the the child is. The child right. picks up one of those routines. Right. It's kind of a trial and error thing and, and tries out routines to see what makes the caregiver respond the way the child wants the caregiver to respond so the child can then feel secure. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like an unspoken agreement that they make with one another. Uh, right. The child, nobody's saying to the child, I need you to do this for me. The child does it to make himself feel better. 
and mm-hmm. and then the audience, the adult, responds in a positive way by looking or acting like she or he feels better. So that, of course, reinforces the behavior, leading to a, a lifelong pattern of using the, the, those behaviors uh, with others to in, to induce them to behave or to feel or act in the way that they, that they need them to behave so that they feel safe. Yeah, it actually makes so much sense when you think the first intimate relationship we have is with our parents and that it would be so well learned psychologically, consciously and unconsciously, it would inevitably come out, you know, in the intimate relationship with a partner or the intimate relationship with a friend. My my next question, though, is so if I'm listening and I'm not sure if I have, am I in an irrelationship? I mean, what would be the telltale signs that... Maybe we have to think this through, or maybe I'll stop by, as one of the partners, maybe I have to start thinking this through. What would be some of the telltale signs that we may be stuck? Right. We actually, can you hear me? Oh, you yeah. Can. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, we actually have a list that we put up uh, as, a, as a way of uh, you know, addressing this. When we meet people who go from one, what we see as irrelationship to another, we encourage themselves to ask these questions. One, do I keep trying to fix or rescue the people that I am drawn to? Do I keep hoping that they will fix or rescue me? Do I equate loving with taking care of or being taken care of? Do I keep doing for my partner even when I feel like I receive little in return? Do my relationships feel more like work than play? Do I feel enlivened or exhausted by my relationship? And does my relationship enrich my life? And we think these questions highlight the fact that your relationship really is about caretaking. And while a rela- mm-hmm. relationship and your relationship resemble each other, uh, they both pr- provide some degree of care, security, and esteem. They ultimately serve different purposes. Because the mm-hmm. goal of a real relationship, or marriage as we're saying today, is to establish closeness and intimacy, while your relationships are constructed to minimize vulnerability through creating distance and control. Yeah, there's a, there are a way of safely trying to get things the only way you ever need to them. I sometimes say I love your list. Uh, is it too much work? Or I'll say, are you married? Are you? Do you find you're married more and enjoying it less? Because usually they are together often for a very long time, and these routines have become so rigid that sometimes it is that it's just too much work that brings them to a therapist or makes them stop and rethink. Or sometimes there's been a change in the context that doesn't allow the person to be the caregiver, the funny one, etc. Right, right, right. Well, this is also, I think, why we try to make a... Go ahead, Grant. Oh, no. Well, I, I was going to say, uh, this is Grant, I often, I often think of a relationship as being like, like a meal. And if you're in a marriage or, or any kind of decent relationship, you should feel like you're nourishing each other. You should feel like you're feeding mm. each other. When people are in an ear relationship, they get a sense that they're starving each other. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Well, the the distance uh, between them becomes static. Uh, Nothing is happening. Nothing is getting in. Nothing is getting out. No change is happening. Everything is so carefully choreographed and so carefully, though tacitly, agreed on that there's there's no dynamism in the relationship at all. There's no growth. Right. We call it brain lock in the book. Right. Yeah. But you could see why when pa- when people will say, patients who come in as couples, we love each other, but it's we're bored. I mean, sometimes yeah. there's a feeling of boredom, oh, sometimes yeah. depression in, right. in a marriage that's not moving forward. 
Um, well, we so think you're lucky. We think you're lucky if you get to the point where you're not just talking about being bored, but you're actually starting to talk about missing each other. Like yeah. missing each other is that quiet little subtle message that, that, that where our longing for each other does start to break through your relationship. Mm-hmm. And you hope, and, that, and we're going to talk about some strategies. It doesn't take much, but even a note, you know, in someone, there's a tendency, I know you, you guys speak about it, that instead of me sending you a note that says, I miss us, I miss you, I s- instead say, you know what, I'm tired of you doing ABC. That is, the right. accusation blame game replaces right. the I'm missing you message. Yeah, right. totally. Right. And the partner may or may not be able to accept that message. Yeah. That, that can be a very hopeful sign that that message is being sent, and particularly if the other party is able to receive it. But sometimes yeah. what that causes is a blow-up in the relationship, yeah. yes. causing the I party... Mean, we're really not about blaming people, but it's such a strong and destructive habit that people have. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, when you think about it, usually if, if couples or partners want to change a relationship, that really means they want to change the other partner, right. not, the, not, not the relationship, <laughs> right. the right. <laughs> Couple therapy is often right. a court of law. Right. Yeah, my, yeah, my marriage would be just fine if my wife would just do this, this, and that. That's yes, right. therapy. We call those until's, you know, I'll be here and you know, everything will be fine until... You start doing what you're told, right. you know. And, and just that we're going to have to take a break. And the other piece is either one suggesting something's amiss creates so much anxiety that, oh, right. as you say, I think, Danny, fighting starts as a way to cover that or as a manifestation of that. So yeah. let's, we're going to come back and talk about strategies for moving on. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. I'm here with doctors Mark Bohr, Grant Brenner, Dan Berry. We're talking about moving your marriage from irrelationship into authenticity and intimacy. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The schizophrenia community faces tough challenges every day. The community includes individuals living with schizophrenia, their partners, parents, children, siblings, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and also their providers of health care and social services. To hear Dr. Gordon Atherley introduce members of the schizophrenia community who are sharing their experiences, tune in to Schizophrenia Community Radio every week. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. 
Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. You're listening to Psych Up Live, and we have a really interesting show. We are talking about moving relationships from dysfunction and irrelationships to authenticity, intimacy, but we know that's a road that may not seem so easy to listeners. We're here with Mark Bohr, Grant Brenner, and Dan Berry. Um, so folks, if we, we were talking about the fact that some of the telltale signs that a marriage is maybe too rigidly configured, it's more of an irrelationship, it's about not being anxious, it's about bringing old routines to play even when they don't fit anymore, and that even the mention that something's wrong um, may bring anxiety. There's a lot of accusations. If we start to think, hey, wait, we need help. What are we going to do? What's our first step? What do you think? What should folks do? Yeah, uh, I I'll, think the I'll, first, I'll you know, the first step is to learn to listen. Um, and we highlight that in, a, in a, a listening practice we have where essentially people take turns listening to one another speak for a certain amount of time. Of using a timer even is, is really helpful. And they're only supposed to talk about their feelings, their experiences, and not do any blaming, not use you statements. Um, and then we talk about discovery being kind of the first step when you have that moment of insight and recognition together that you've been doing, you've been doing this. You've been, you've been up to something together that's not working. And that can be accompanied by both anxiety as well as a sense of hope and curiosity. Right, right. We did this with many, many uniformed service couples, and I will tell you that the whole idea that I'm listening to him for three minutes and I don't have to prepare my jump in and he's listening to me, what the response was was that, wait, I feel like I was heard for the first time or I I wasn't worried that I had to break my way into the conversation. And what you just said is when couples finally begin to think, let's listen to each other, and they come up with a pattern that they identify, like what I used to do in my childhood that I'm bringing here, if that's it, um, they're very intrigued. It's sort of mutual for the first time in a long time for some. Yeah. That's a really important point, uh, and it's not an automatic skill that, that, that we're taught. Uh, a lot of the times in many of the places in which we find ourselves, perhaps uh, in close relationships and, and in the workplace also, when we're listening, what we're really doing is we're preparing for our comeback, right. our retaliation, right. Right. And, which, which obviates the possibility of, of being able to hear what's being said and appreciate the feelings of the other. 
the, the right. listening that, that we're trying to, to, to teach um, is making hospitality for the other person's feelings and words in a non-judgmental way. After all, nobody asked to be got into this kind of a, 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 of a dysfunctional routine and relationship with each other. So the idea of blame needs to be put out, needs to be put aside to, mm. so that they can hear each other. I love that phrase, making hospitality for the other's words, Danny. That's, that's terrific. So what if we want to do this, but we're very used to and very good at fighting? And we're very, I mean, we go into a restaurant, he orders, I order, it comes wrong. We hate the waitress, but we don't fight with the waitress. We fight with each other. I mean, how do we get past couples that are professional fighters? One of the important things about a a, a scenario such as you're describing is when people realize that they're doing something like that over and over again, that's actually a hopeful sign rather than Mm. otherwise because they're opening themselves to the possibility that there's something wrong with the way we always do things. People can go for years accepting their status quo uh, and and thinking, never really reflecting on whether there's anything wrong with this or whether we would like it to be different. Mm. What might be a first step in in changing it? What, What could a couple do? What we try to do is teach a technique uh, that we call the self-other assessment. And the self-other assessment uh, is a way in which people deliberately sit and give, one, give each other uh, an equal amount of time to share how ex- they themselves are experiencing the situation without putting blame on anybody for it, exploring the feelings that they have with it, and the reactions that they have to it. And, what we're, what, and the idea is that this will connect them with the anxiety that drove them into a relationship in the first place. So let and me give they, you an ex- Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And if they can connect it with an experience from the past, I think that tends, that tends both to diffuse ideas about blame and also to reduce anxiety. Hmm. So here's an example for the three of you. So the couple's going to the family holiday at the in-laws. She's late because he's sitting in the car watching his watch. The kids are doing all kinds of mechanical devices. They don't care when they get there. She gets in the car and he says, as usual, you're late. You're making us late. And she says, of course I'm making us late because there's no one else who does anything in this house. And I'd like to be the one sitting in the car waiting also. And on they go. So if they were to sit down, how how would it go, uh, Mark? I mean, what would they do? Well, we actually think, again, like Danny was saying, we believe that there is a certain point where people hit rock bottom, where you just can't dig any deeper. And we believe that people, by the time they're talking to us, they've hit that bottom. And if they even know anything about us or if they've had any interest in any relationship, if something has caught their eye the likelihood is that that fighting can be perceived as a, as a gasp, as, a, as the gasp of a drowning person. I can't tell you how many people have seen the subtitle of our book, How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy, and said to us, no, thank you. You know, no, you know, we, we prefer not to. 
but, but even, <laughs> you know, but even that for us, it's hopeful. We have this ironic sense that that fighting, that gasping, that knocking against that other person's wall is actually, you know, ultimately something that can lead to hitting, hitting bottom and realizing that they're trapped in a song and dance routine. And if they are, you know, continue through and they don't give up, they can allow themselves to feel the anxiety and the isolation that they've been actually defending against once they start missing each other. Mm. Beginning what was to your learn. question, Suzanne? No, well... A couple in the well, car? Well, the cars, yeah. my question was really, um, I remember an example you gave in the book where you decide to invite a couple to think about, maybe you can talk about this a little, it's not 50% your fault, 50% my fault, or 100% your fault, or 100% my fault, Maybe it's 40% your fault, 40 my, 40% my fault. Maybe it's 20%, you know, nothing that we have anything to do with. Um, right. They, right. Why are they having the holiday dinner at 11? I mean, maybe this is right. really... So I think as soon as you can break that all or nothing, and that's what you were yeah. talking about in the book, I thought, what a good way for people at least to take a step out of the all or nothing blame routine. Well, That's what we actually call it. We, we call it 40-20-40. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, so the couple, this is grand, the couple might say, hold on, what are we doing? We're about to do our song and dance routine again, aren't we? I'm blaming you, you're blaming me. Let's, let's do that thing that, that the guys describe in the book. And they would say, all right, I'll listen to you. Go ahead, tell me what you're feeling. And then the other person would say, well... You know, I just, I always, I always feel like I'm the one who has to make the sacrifices and, you know, you get to watch the baseball game while you're sitting in the car and I know you don't really want to be here. Sorry, I know I'm not supposed to talk about you. It makes me feel like I'm the one who's making all the sacrifices all the time and then, you know, and so on and so forth. And then the other person would get to speak from their experience. Well, I totally understand what you mean. Like, I, I kind of feel the same way sometimes. You know, when you go off and take a bath for an hour and a half and, you know, I've got to put the kids to bed and you didn't even ask me, oh, oh, sorry, there I go again. I'm making, I'm saying it's your fault, but I'm just saying that it feels really bad for me. Uh, mm. And, and, and that, the that builds a real that. accord over time. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, that's great. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's Danny. And one of the keys in all that is that um, the fact that they're complaining about it suggests that they're missing each other, that mm-hmm. there has been a relationship that they at some point uh, perhaps had depended on or had hoped for, and those hopes have been disappointed. And so there's some complaining about that, which is also a cry for help. Can we do this differently? Can we find a way back out of this, this yeah. song and dance we've been doing for years mm-hmm. and recapture and- who it was, what it was about one another, that excited us about each other to start with. Mm, you guys call it mutually interactive repair in the book, which I love. And yeah. I just love what you said, Danny, that idea of let's work on getting the relationship we always dreamed of having that we had glimpses of yeah. at some point. Yeah. And if you're and listening we actually, to each other, yeah. someone is eventually going to get to the point where they feel safe enough to recognize, hey, I miss you, and say it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if it's, they have, go ahead. It's not an easy place to come to, of course, if the exposing of one's vulnerability in that way. I mean, so much of our socialization process uh, in general uh, teaches us not to expose vulnerability. And the closer we are to another person, 
the more at risk we could think ourselves to be. Uh, and and the, the scarier the idea of exposing vulnerability can be. But if that process is being shared and everybody is putting that their vulnerability on the table, they have a better chance then of engaging a dialogue that begins a healing process. You know, there was some research that showed that, strangely enough, watching relationship films or films about relationships really helped couples. They had to analyze what was going on with the couple. And I say it only because if a couple can almost take the third-party view of their own relationship, I'll say to a couple, let's just put it on the screen. If you were watching this, what would you say about him and what would you say about her? And it's interesting, when it's media and there's that distance there's so much more ability to see both sides. So, yeah. I mean, that's what we're really asking them to consider, to step out of the routine and really look at it like a, like a, from a third perspective. Well, and then it becomes possible then uh, to accommodate the idea that my behaviors, um, deliberately or not, that my, the behaviors I'm bringing to the table are making you uncomfortable, are making you uneasy. And and that wasn't my goal when I married you, to make you uneasy. When I married mm-hmm. you, I wanted to get closer, and somehow we've developed all this other stuff that just makes us stay in these places in a static way so that nothing, whenever we interact with one another, we're set up to have that same old interaction again and again that's full of friction and dissatisfaction and annoyance. And nobody is really calling those annoyances by their correct name. Mm. Um, Now, what have you folks... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We started out by calling it... Go ahead. (laughs) Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. I'm back. (laughs) Good. Sorry, Suzanne. Go ahead, please. Well, I wanted to know if we're talking so much about intimacy, so where does a couple's life and their sexual intimacy play into this? I mean, I'll just say that I've, been, I've worked with couples for whom, it, you know, it's just, that's, that's Sunday morning, that's all it is, it's no big deal. But I know couples listening must be thinking, you know, they said it hides them from intimacy. In addition to the personal, verbal, knowing each other as people, learning the surprises, how does the sexual intimacy get reset? Sounds like we lost Mark again. Uh, what, okay, what well, often, let's talk about it. Uh, what well, often you know, people, happens? So, someone, someone may eventually bring up sex if, if um, you know, a lot of times if there's if there's nothing else to talk about because a, a lot of times people's uh, self esteem is so tied up in sexually satisfying the yeah, other person so. or not sexually satisfying them. And people are so um, reluctant to talk about their sexual needs almost more than anything else. So, um, or it'll yeah. come up in a kind of a hostile way, like you're not satisfying me. Um, why don't you mm-hmm. act, you know, sexually attractive and flirtatious the way you used to when we were first dating? Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's kind of the last thing that people will bring up. And yet this is double-edged because when you put sex on the table... Uh, you're kind of saying that uh, all bets are off, no more holds barred. Everything is, everything is eligible to be discussed. And when you've been living in a relationship where you've been fighting against intimacy, 
if you're at a place, you're not easily going to come to a place where you're going to be willing to talk about sex. I think sex disappears from a lot of people's relationships, and there's never any discussion about it. They may still even sleep in the same bed. Uh, Danny, I have said to people that um, many people would rather have sex than talk about it, or not have sex than talk about it. But talking about it is just a little too intimate. You're exactly right. Oh um, yeah. Did I say well, that? I, anybody so can have sex. Anybody can have sex. Clinical work, um, but using it to build intimacy is a different ball game altogether. All right, Grant. Oh, sorry. I was I was thinking of something that has come up um, a bunch of times in my practice where. People talk about what you were saying, Suzanne. They, they, they would rather have sex than talk about it. A, a lot of times people are having what I call you know, partially consensual sex. They're having sex out of duty, or they're sometimes having sex even when they don't really want to. And right. it, it's a really damaging situation to be in. Mm, right. Um, and it's a sign of how powerful these dynamics can be. Yep. So what, would, what do you say? We, we only have a little bit more time in this segment, but Grant, how do you usually approach that? Well, I want to explore where the person is coming from first and, and find out what their attitudes are. One, one thing I'm aware of as a clinician is that I've got very strong feelings about it, um, especially as someone who works with trauma. I, I think that most, most likely people shouldn't do things against their will. Right. So I kind of have to check my moral impulse and explore what that person thinks about it. And then I'll start with feelings, usually, uh, if the person can talk about how they feel about that and, um, and take it from there. Mm. Sometimes couples, when they're in the room and you actually do bring it up and they're asked to talk about what they're feeling, the other is startled to hear what they have to say. Mm. And that in itself becomes a very intimate moment and sometimes can be the start of a conversation. Mm. Yes, We're going to exactly. have to take a break. Yeah, we'll take a break. We'll come right back to this. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're talking about authenticity and intimacy in relationships with Mark Bohr, Grant Brenner, Danny Berry. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. 
Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Mark Bohr, Grant Brenner, and Dan Barry. They're the authors of the new book, Irrelationship, How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy. And we've taken this discussion from how do I know I have an irrelationship to what can we do about turning up the authenticity, putting down the old patterns from childhood, and starting to find each other. We were talking um, before we, we took the break about intimacy and even sexual intimacy, how it's just as hard to talk about sexual connection as it is to have sexual connection when a couple's been really somewhat estranged, although they're living as if everything is fine. Sometimes my guests are telling all of you and me that it's good when you find out it's not fine. When you hit bottom, sometimes that's the start. So I wondered if we could pick up at that point. Grant? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think... It, it's, such a, it's such a source of, shall we say, shame for people. Um, even as a couple, you know, it's one person can feel embarrassed and ashamed that they don't feel like they're performing or they're pleasing their partner and vice versa. But even for a couple um, to have the risk that people around them know that they're not sexually active, it's like they're falling down on the job. They're not meeting some expectation of what it means to be in a relationship and to be married. When I work with people, I try to explore, you know, what sex means to them uh, together and individually. And, you know, a lot of times, of course, there's a difference between sexual intercourse and being, being physically intimate, more sensual with one another. And a lot of sex therapists and couples therapists would, would sort of say, well, kind of don't worry so much about having sexual intercourse, but start, you know, start at first base with basic snuggling and getting more comfortable and seeing mm-hmm. how that feels and taking it mm-hmm. from there. Uh, and also, you know, it's in almost... terms of your relationship, you have to think of sex as performance to try to take care of the other person and ask what are my motives for, for being sexually active. Is it part of an irrelationship okay, dynamic or is it part of a, a healthy, intimate relationship? Mm-hmm. Great point. Really point. Even take a look at it that way. Danny, I was yeah. wondering, um, in terms of our couples who are listening, so what what would you say would be the essential message you would share in terms of how to take stock of the status of your relationship at this point and how to take steps to maybe even improving it? Well, I think a really important thing to be able to do is to recognize, uh, for most of us who have had sexual problems in relationships, to be able to look back and realize that what I'm doing today that I'm not happy with, probably, probably this isn't the first time. 
that probably what I'm doing that is that what's going on in my relationships that isn't satisfactory probably has a long history. So right. something's going on here that we don't want to just talk in terms of blame or 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 dissatisfaction. Um, that there's a, a point at which intimacy is approached, and then suddenly it stops. So this ties right. again. This ties into the idea of a relationship, the fear of of showing just a little too much of oneself, of becoming just a little bit too vulnerable to one's partner. Mm-hmm. Now, well, and that's also why we think that it's so important to recognize in the beginning of this that the missing actually is a sort of call for help that people start to be able to hear. So people don't generally tend to jump right back in the sack. But right. they do start to have this conversation that is open to what is it that we're missing and how is it perhaps, well, for example, I had someone today who had had a bicycle accident just a couple of days ago and uh, he went to the hospital and his wife came and, uh, you know, they started, they started talking and, and they both are, they're in their relationship in such a way that they both try to take care of each other, but neither one receives anything that the other one has to offer. So they're constantly operating like a, you know, like a push toward each other and never really mm-hmm. able to get anything through, almost like a spigot, like a fire hose going at full speed. And just this morning, and by the way, there's also a couple who haven't had sex for a couple of years, and just this morning, as he's tumbling out of the hospital after this terrible bicycle accident, he's talking about how for the first time he was actually able to take in this loving care that his wife had to offer him. And it was, it was, a, really, it was a huge breakthrough for him, but it's very quiet this very quiet willingness to allow someone else to take care of him because so much of the irony of your relationship is it's really not about what we give to other people because people in your relationship are plenty willing to give and give and give and give. The real issue is whether or not we'll receive what they have to offer. And it's Mm -hmm. a huge breakthrough when someone's actually able, even just a crumb falling off the table, though that's not what this was this morning. It was actually quite a dramatic example, but but even just a crumb of something falling off the table that we're willing to receive and take in and let nurture us, it, 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 is, it is absolutely anti-irrelationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be able to take in, to appreciate, no matter how small it is, is not only nurturing for you, it's a gift to the partner who is giving absolutely. it. Well, because it allows the person too. finally to know that they have value. That's the problem. Irrelationships, uh, one of its primary war cries is you don't appreciate me but what's really going on is you're pushing so much on the other person that you're not allowing the other person to feel valuable mm. and the, the receiving and, is the same as listening listening to right. really get the other person rather than listening to you know construct a counter argument absolutely right it's letting yourself I well think it's, it's so metaphorically important. being yeah it's, it's being willing to be touched you know, yeah, right. and, and yeah, absolutely. And also the willingness, the willingness to believe that what you've always done isn't what you always have to do. That's that right. You, that That's place right. that you've come to, where you've reached an impasse, that doesn't have to be the last word. That doesn't have to be the signal. Ah, it's time to move on uh, mm-hmm. to That's the right. next relationship. That's the A yeah. in alternatives mm-hmm. in the dream That's sequence. Right. That's right. And then once you, you know, once you can implement that, then you can start to go toward what we call empowering communication. We think of the 40-20-40, the self-other assessment, as a way of empowering effective communication. Again, back to what we've been talking about, just this space 
where you're willing not only to listen, but remember the 40-20-40 is also a place where you're taking account of how much you're contributing to whatever the right. problem or issue is. You know, you're not yeah. going be- be- beyond 60%, not going below 40 And so that 20% space that you talked about earlier is a shared space, a safe space, because the dream sequence is also about creating safety to actually give and take. Because we think of giving and taking in relationship as, we call it relationship sanity. <laughs> well, what's interesting, <laughs> what's so nice about this 40-20-40 is I don't have to be nervous that I'm going to be blamed or he's going to scream right. that I blamed him because it, it it's right. just gives room for movement. Yes. It really Absolutely. allows, it allows, it really facilitates talking. Um, I wonder, um, uh, Mark, if you <laughs> were to give our listeners a take-home message about how to move out of a new relationship, what would it be? The message primarily would be not to give up. <laughs> the message would be to allow yourself to take this message, to hear these words, to see that, you know, that subtitle of you know, how we're using uh, our own relationships. Forget dysfunction. But we're using relationship itself as a place to hide from relationship. And I think it's an incredible message of hope if you found yourself somewhat provoked by this conversation. I think it's an incredible, incredible moment of hope if you've been able to listen and you haven't done what so many people have told us they're going to do once we explain the book, which is not buy it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about you, Danny? <laughs> I'm not buying that book. No way. If you've sat through this whole, you know, if you've sat through this whole conversation, then something resonating, and we believe that the dream sequence actually can create communication really quite unique. I mean, not just in terms of uh, romantic relationships, but we use this, we actually use these tools in our team. We use these tools among the three of us to communicate with each other and to, and to create, you know, uh, an intimacy, uh, an accepting and, and, uh, of each other that really goes beyond anything, uh, you know, I've experienced elsewhere. <laughs> for, for our listeners to know, the dream sequence are five steps that that our authors have come up with from discovery to engaging a plan to understanding and accepting responsibility to considering different types of change um, to really give and take mutuality. A lot of very valuable strategies and steps. So I love the, the idea of calling it a dream sequence because it's a dream if you can do this and move through and you've made it very workable to move through. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's returning. Let to me the ask or- you. <laughs> it's returning to oh, the original I to- dream. Yeah, I- I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Danny, if you had a take-home message for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, it would be an add-on to what to what Mark said. And it's, it's, uh, and, and this is a, one of my favorite one of my favorite aspects of discovering your relationship, is that. When you begin to have those intimations in your relationship, in your song and dance routine, your carefully prescribed roles, when you begin to have that intimation that something just isn't right, there's a piece missing, that, that doesn't mean it's time to head for the door. That mm. means that you're beginning to get a flash that something can be different. Right. You don't have to cast it in your mind as a negative but as a positive, as a hopeful sign, when something right. doesn't seem right. Yep. Okay, so you look at it as something that has potential rather than as something that's an indictment. It's an opportunity. Right. 
Yeah, great. (laughs) You know, um, Grant, I wonder, I know that our listeners, your blogs are terrific. The book is very, very interesting and very valuable. Grant, how would folks get to all of you and what websites could they access? Right. Well, our, our, our own website is appropriately named www.irrelationship.com and irrelationship is spelled like the word relationship with an I-R-R at the beginning, like irreality, irrelationship. And we also blog on psychology today under the same name, but on, on our website, there is a, a contact form um, and also a request for workshops and speaking engagements and consultations. That's easy to find. And we have a couple of videos on YouTube. We're active on Twitter and on Facebook and on LinkedIn. So if someone Googles so any of your names, ways. if they Google any yeah. of your names, they're going to get to some terrific material. Um, Mark, Grant, Danny, I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live um, you, you as a group are wonderful to work with, and this is a true contribution because it's a book about potential, and it's a real gift, and, and for that, I thank you for coming thank you, on. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks okay. for supporting thank us so for much. so long as well, Suzanne. <laughs> okay, you're very <laughs> welcome. You. Um, I want to thank our listeners and invite you to join me next week when our guest is going to be psychotherapist Ross Rosenberg, and, and he's really going to pick up this discussion because he's going to discuss the book and magnet syndrome, why we love and get addicted to people who hurt us. So that's one you're going to want to hear. Send me a message about it. Remember, you're part of the conversation. That's at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Thanks and keep listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america variety channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericavariety.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.